0: Hey there, language hackers, it's Shannon here, ready to introduce episode 18 of the Language Hacking Podcast. In this episode, Benny and I chat with Kirsten Cable, founder of fluentlanguage.co.uk and The Fluent Show, another fantastic language learning podcast we recommend checking out. In our chat, Kirsten Cable shares her experience learning English to a native-like level, her approach to learning new vocabulary, and the long-term, slow approach to learning new languages. We hope you enjoy our interview. And speaking of enjoying the podcast, thanks again to everyone who's left a review recently. It makes a big difference and helps us reach a wider audience. If you're finding this podcast interesting or helpful, please let us know what's working for you at languagehacking.com/review. We really appreciate hearing from you, and we read every review. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com/18. Now, onto our interview with Kirsten Cable. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast. We're your hosts, Benny Lewis. Hello. And I'm Shannon Kennedy. And today with us, we have a very special guest. Her name is Kirsten Cable. Kirsten, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, Shannon.
1: <laughs> Hi, Benny. I'm well. I'm so excited to be talking to you two and talking to you For a podcast, which is very, very exciting for me. Yeah, my name is Kirsten Cable. I run a website called fluentlanguage.co.uk and I have a podcast myself. (laughs) It's the thing that everybody says these days, but I've been saying that for many, many years. So I host a podcast called The Fluent Show, which is essentially about loving, living and learning languages. And that's roughly it. I could tell you all my languages, but... I don't know. Do you want me to?
2: <laughs> well, we we've got we've definitely got we've got a lot to to get through. You've got a very interesting story, a lot of experience. But just to kick things off, how did you get into language learning in general? How how when did it become a big part of your life?
1: Like when I was 10, I was into language learning when language just became a school subject that I could do. And before that, I was kind of waiting for it. Like I knew I was like eight, nine years old and growing up, I grew up in rural Germany. And when you grow up in Germany, you know, you get, um, it's a very small world, really idyllic, but everybody knows each other in my village. And I think I always had like, you know, I was very aware that there were songs in French on the radio or songs in English on the radio and that there was a massive world out there. And I don't know, maybe it's the being a very small 80s kid in Germany when we're about to be reunited and you just realize how big the world is. So there's just so much going on. And I know that English would become a school subject when I start going to the big school. And I was so looking forward to it. So I was was into languages
0: before I started learning them seemingly. And as you mentioned, you're from Germany, so English isn't your native language, but for anyone listening, they probably have no idea that you are not a native English speaker because your English is so amazing. So um obviously you didn't just learn English in school to get to the level you're at today. So what are some of the other things that you've done? With English, music
1: was a huge factor for me. I got into, I got really, really into like Britpop when Britpop was a thing, which is the nineties, which sort of two years after I started learning English. And, um, yeah, I bought the album different class by pulp and then just became a super fan for decades, decades, and just, you know, really, really studied the lyrics and just had this, this, the cultural influence and the cultural weight of kind of that particular 90s sort of indie music scene for some reason just really did it for me. And um, that made a massive difference. I was forever, I slept with a dictionary next to my bed, not because I was so desperate to learn the language, but because I would listen to the music and sometimes hear a word and I'd be like, oh no, I just want to know what that means. And this is, you know, obviously before mobile phones or whatever, so I just had this like dictionary and I would look up words whenever I needed them. And I just, yeah, really consumed a lot of that kind of, Culture way before I moved to England or anything like that.
2: And what I find interesting is, uh, there, there are lots of, uh, people who would have eventually picked up English after moving to England. And, uh, that's, that story in itself is, isn't unique, but you've actually gone beyond that and you've been very much invested in learning Welsh, which is a, a very unique undertaking and um it's been a big passion of yours for quite a while and i presume you're making great progress in it so what was your motivation for learning welsh and and that that's a tricky language because that's uh there's a lot less resources available uh, for it so what are you doing with welsh and what's the story behind that
1: I, um, I, I couldn't tell you like a specific, you know, tangible reason why I started learning Welsh, but I think that often the, when we try to rationalize or we look for the tangible reason why we, why we're learning this language or that language, it, it doesn't really account for anything. Like I often work with language learners who are, giving me the rundown of like the eight page reasons of why should I learn German or should I learn French? Oh my God. I know seven German people and I know five French people Therefore, German is more important and it never adds up. And it never, you know, sometimes your heart just really wants something. And with, with me, with Welch, I was just like, it just makes me so happy. It is bizarre. I just, I'm just into it. So there's, there's that. I didn't know before I started learning it, that I would be into it to that extent. I, think there was an element of genuine curiosity and excitement about the opportunity to learn a language of my, essentially my my second home country and to just kind of go deeper on Britain and to understand more about Britain. Then there is the fact that to me personally, Welsh is just beautiful. Like linguistically, it fascinates me. It's really fun. And I never... I never perceived that there are fewer resources, not really like every now and then maybe, yeah, if you want to open an app or download an app, the app doesn't have Welch link, doesn't have Welsh. this doesn't have Welch and it, you know, it can have moments of frustration, but I always felt I'm, I'm a bit of a finisher anyway. Like I kind of really like to go through my stuff and feel, I feel so good when I get to the end of a chapter or I get to the end of an actual book. So I would rather not burden myself with 10 different resources when I can make more out of four of them.
0: You're also taking on a newer language to you right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, Christ,
1: Shannon. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's, you say newer to me. I have, I have been probably, it's been about seven or eight months that I have been, I have been (sighs) at first dabbling and kind of sort of making eyes at Chinese and then sort of started it. And then I thought, okay, right. We're getting serious about it. And then I kind of fell out with it and then we got back together. And I don't know why I talk about languages like boyfriends, but here we go. And yeah, so I've been doing Chinese for about eight months now. And I finally, I think I'm finally making sentences that make sense to people, that people are actually understanding, which is a wonderful experience and just feels really good. And I think I took on Chinese because I, I was starting to feel a bit like Euro, you know, like Shannon is Euro linguist, but I think we've joked about that before. It's like, I've got all the European languages and nothing outside of Europe, even though Celtic is like, it's quirky European Russian. It's a different flavor of European, but it's still European. I just felt like, look, it's time, it's time for Asia. It's time for something different and yeah. Yeah, it was it's been it's been really interesting, challenging, challenging. But they all are, right?
2: Yeah, but what have you found to be the biggest challenges learning your first Asian language compared to learning the European ones?
1: This the the this, the syllable structure, like the way that all the words are essentially just syllables kind of put together and all the syllables are really similar. And so I've got very little like normally with languages, I have really good memory. I think. And I have, I have good pronunciation and pronunciation in Chinese is the thing that people compliment me on and people, you know, appreciate. And I haven't had a big challenge with the tones, et cetera. But the vocab, I think the way I normally succeed with vocab is by looking at the word and kind of just going, cool, looks like this that I already know. And with Chinese, there isn't really a, oh, this looks like this that I already know because I'm used to you know, Indo, Indo Indo-European, essentially indo germanic languages. And this is so different that it took me a long time to kind of get into all these nuances of all the syllables. And I think that's still the challenge. So like remembering anything, it just, there was just felt like there's nothing for it to hook onto and it just kind of fell out of my head. So I had to go for different methods and stuff.
0: You've learned languages in vastly different language families at this point, when you look at Welsh or some of the more Romance languages like French and Russian and the Slavic language family, and now Chinese. um, Have you found that learning languages in these different families has helped you keep them separate or has it made it more challenging to learn them because you feel like you're starting over each time? Mm, I have my more
1: similar languages, say French, German, Italian, I, I, our Latin, I kind of studied them in what, in my memory is kind of a block altogether. In reality, I didn't study them all at the same time. I studied them all over a period of, from when I was 13 to when I was about 20. So there's actually seven years of me doing different ones of these languages, just because of what was available in my education at the time. And I have huge interference in them, which really helps in terms of understanding. But it does mean that, like, I completely accept that if I try to speak Spanish, I will just waffle French words at people. And to be honest, by the time I learned Spanish, I was even accepting that, that this is just, you know, I'm just going to say an English word, put on an accent and see what happens. Um, Yeah, so I I don't, I haven't found it particularly I don't know if it's harder or easier. I haven't found it frustrating to learn Welsh or learn Chinese because there is, there's just less interference. So in a way it kind of feels nicer because it's sort of neat and tidy in its own box. But weird things do happen. Like when I try to sp- say stuff in Spanish, I really often say things in Welsh. Those are not related languages. They just seem to live in some kind of corner of my brain when they're neighbors or something. And I don't know.
2: <laughs> I don't know the neuroscience of that. Yeah, I find whenever I'm uh, my freshest languages tend to, to mix up in a similar way, whatever the most recent ones I've learned have been. Um, so when you're learning similar languages, so you can rely on a lot of similar vocab between like the likes of Spanish and French. But whenever you've taken on a language in a new family, be it Welsh or when you were taking on your first Slavic language, um, w- I know that you've you've worked a lot in uh, helping people with their ability to learn uh, vocabulary and with their memory. So what techniques and tools uh, do you have and you recommend for people?
1: Mm, something I really like is to, when, when something really won't stick is to go to some kind of picture and to think like what does this look like or to act it out so uh, the chinese word which i'm going to mispronounce and shannon you, you can you just not because pretend we're doing this right <laughs> but there's what is it xiuxi, right relax please tell me i'm doing this right yeah see i can't pronounce it <laughs> oh never mind <laughs> see that's chinese with me it's like why uh, okay the only reason i can even half remember that Is because I ended up just imagining myself like taking a deep breath, doing a stretch. So I'm kind of going, you know, like proper acting it out. And then it started sticking. So when a word really won't stick, I go to some kind of image. And I know Xian Sai now is, um, in the end, I kind of went for, well, what on earth can I possibly tie to this? And it's a shin side. So I imagine a watch tied to my shin so this doesn't have to be necessarily something that makes a lot of sense but and i found with some of my german students that they just have a magical talent for it they just go oh this sounds like that and and then remember it forever through that kind of connection and but i've found as well when i have a visual for it or even an imagined visual it doesn't have to necessarily relate to that meaning but it has to relate also to the sound of what you know, what the word sounds like when I've got a visual for the sound, I personally find it so, so helpful. And something else that I also do is to um, image search the words. So just, you know, to put the Chinese word in there and then just image search it. And again, maybe it's, maybe it's, that I respond really well to, to visual elements. It's when there is a visual, that's when things start to stick with me. So I think with with the latin based languages or the indo you know the european languages I think one of the reasons I I find it easier to remember them is because I actually look at the word and I usually find something in the word that looks familiar to a different word that I know and in chinese I haven't had that so it's been the biggest challenge definitely
0: That's really interesting so what you said is you visual learning works really well for you and also kinesthetic learning. Like you were saying, you tie that motion, like stretching to the Chinese word. Um, so I know you're really into like these, um, types of learning styles and personality styles. Um, so in addition. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good personality, Chris. So in addition to like the types of learning and then figuring out what type of learner you are so that you can apply that to your language learning and best learn, you also um, have a, another sort of personality or identifier that you use to help with language learning too. Can you talk a bit about that? Oh, you mean the the four tendencies?
1: Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not my system at all. Um, I just found it so interesting to think through and to apply to language learning is so much fun. We did this in, in language Leak, which is, um, Shannon and I work together in, in a little membership group called language Leak. So what we did in, or what I did in that session was look at something called the Four Tendencies Framework, which is by Gretchen Rubin, who's a writer, uh, who writes a lot. And I really like the way she puts her advice. I find it very actionable. I find it it's, she researches so much. She's so always referenced extremely well. And her work is about habits and the way that we, you know, the way that we get things done and the way that a lot of it is obviously about getting self-improvement done and self-improvement stuff has a lot in common with language learning stuff, because it's all about disciplining ourselves and, you know, reaping those rewards. So the way that she looks at this four tendencies framework is by relating to how we, as, as people respond to two different types of expectations, there's inner expectations and outer expectations. So for language learning, an outer expectation would be that, You know, that long list of reasons and the seven German friends versus the five French friends or the expectations essentially that the outer world has on you. That is how you respond to an external obligation or obligation or an expectation. And you can make that smaller and more relevant, even in terms of thinking about how you go about studying within a week and whether you respond really well to. Whether there is a tutor who you have to meet, you know, you're feeling accountable to somebody, whether you've got language learning buddies, whether you care about um posting your progress on social media and especially thinking, oh, well, people are expecting me to do that. And if you perform well to that, that is a certain way of doing it. Whereas other people just really don't care or even resist that expectation and don't want anything to do with that. And then the other side of it is the internal expectation, which is how well you respond to the standards and expectations you set for yourself so wanting to, you know, saying to yourself, I don't know, I'm going to do the Fluent free most Challenge or I'm going to do... Like for me, I, had, I just finished the italki challenge and I set myself the 12-hour goal. And I noticed that because I had chosen this goal, that was my performance. But nobody outside cares if I really meet this goal. So for some people, there is that internal expectation can be a huge motivator. And four tendencies really relates to The way that these can all, the different constellations that you can kind of fall into. And there's four of them. Uh, They are the obliger, which is somebody who responds really well to external. Sometimes might neglect the internal expectations. So it's sort of, well, everybody wants me to do more German. My heart is kind of wanting to go to Welsh, but I'll just stick with German, you know. Then there is the questioner, which is somebody who essentially won't do something unless They've managed to make it into an internal expectation. So questions, everything that comes at them. Uh, you asked me to come on this podcast and I'm like, mm, okay, well, will I, won't I? What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? Do I want to do this? Yes. I like these people. Okay. And then it's my internal expectation and I'm absolutely going to be here because I've chosen to do it, but I won't do it. If I don't feel like it's, if I feel like it's arbitrary, uh, there is the upholder, which is somebody who responds extremely well to either outer or inner expectations. And then there is something that she refers to as the rebel, (laughs) which is somebody who can't really fulfill inner expectations, can't really fulfill outer expectations. And she comes up with these cute little mottos for them. And the motto explains it really well, which is you can't make me, neither can I. (laughs) So those are the kind of four areas. And I like the way that they break out of introversion, extroversion, or MBTI, or any ways that we think about ourselves. And I think we think about how we behave in the actual situation that we're in. Um, yeah. And you can, you can use those when you are thinking about why you are in it for the language and the different kind of ways that you make yourself accountable. And that can massively help with getting stuff done. So that was a long speech there. (laughs)
2: No, it's very interesting. And I know a lot of people in uh, listening may, if, especially if they're getting into languages, they may uh, struggle with self-motivation. So if they, for instance, uh, identified with this rebel personality, and they find that not only can external forces get them to learn language, but they can't really motivate themselves, then what from that framework would you suggest to them? Uh, to get that motivation if they feel like they can't get it externally or internally.
1: Something that apparently works, or that I've I've heard works well for a rebel. I know very few of them, um, but something that works for rebels, two things. Apparently, they respond well to a fad or any kind of extremely high challenge. So, so anything that is kind of a new quirky method that you really want to try out, or even a point of you putting it to them and saying like, I think you could never do this you know i think you could never do chinese and korean and swahili at the same time that's nobody can do that that kind of challenge often kind of gives apparently gives a rebel the motivation to go well i'll show you and that can be a really good motivator so that you kind of you want to go against the grain or you could take it as you know so there's a lot of individuality that needs to be expressed and it needs to be really about it needs to be really about Identifying as the kind of person and to think about why your language learning makes you essentially a unique. Personality, right? So because you 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 won't be you won't be particularly motivated by doing what everybody else does. You're kind of looking for your point of difference, and to find that is is really really helpful. So you might find people saying, "Oh, I'm learning this quirky language." You might find somebody saying, "Well, I'm setting myself this really high challenge." Which for me, I would look at that and say well, that's insane. And therefore, cause I'm a, I'm a questioner very much. So as soon as I look at something and I think, well, that doesn't make sense, then my motivation, just, I can feel it draining out of me. I just don't want to do it anymore. But for somebody like that, it might be, well, I'll show you, it makes sense. I've chosen, you know, and that, that can really, really help. So there's a, there's really a way for every, everybody to, to use insights like that.
0: I think it's really interesting because I think more before there was kind of like this one size fits all approach to language learning. It was like you had this limited set of resources and no matter who you were, what your learning style was, you had to make that work for you. But now there are so many different options available that once you kind of get to know who you are, what where your motivations lie, what style of learning works for you, you can start to create this tailored approach to your learning. So for you as a questioner, like what does that look like for you? A
1: lot of customization, a lot of making my own plans, my personal plans and really looking at setting goals that feel realistic to me that I feel a hundred percent committed to on the inside. Something I'm having to learn. It's funny that you're saying, you know, there's, there used to be kind of more methods. And I think there is a lot of sway that we see on social media, or you might think, well, Benny Lewis does it this way. Polyglot A does it this way. Polyglot F does it this way. And for me, I have to, I mean, I have to benefit of trying to count in my head 27 years of doing this already right so so there is there isn't so much in me asking myself how do i do this um it's not like diy which i'm completely new to and useless at but there is this kind of i have to when it comes to self motivating when it comes to my learning pace i have to find myself in a place where i feel really confident in what makes sense for me and I I have chosen to kind of do it in a way that makes sense for me. And every resource, et cetera, is something that I have to almost hold myself to is to not start questioning something that I've already committed to. So I work really well with just setting just sort of the monthly goals and then working towards it at the month and then at the end of the month going, Ah, oh, yes, no. And Shannon, you've you've experienced me doing this, right? With Chinese. Every few months going, I don't know if this is what am I doing here? Like, am I still in this? And I have to do that. I have to question continuously, um, is this still the best way of doing it? So it's, you can really fall into optimizing quite badly, but you can also optimize.
2: Okay. So, um, moving back to your Welsh experience, because I think it's just got so many unique parts of your story there. Um, I believe that when you were just relatively new to the language, You've volunteered at a Welsh festival. Um, and like uh, that's something that I know so many people would be intimidated by. I, I'd certainly be intimidated to, to get that kind of direct exposure and interaction. So how did you work through your, uh, your limitations to, to be able to actually interact with people, uh, at such a culturally immersive experience?
1: I found volunteering extremely helpful because when you are a volunteer, you're there to help and you're offering your help and your time for free, which I felt at least uh, it makes me feel safer because it kind of generates more goodwill. Something, something I really don't, I'm really not keen on is to kind of walk the, the, I'm going to walk into a shop and speak my language at them. And I'm going to be so perfect that they will respond to me. And it's all going to be paradise. I, I don't really respond to that approach very well. It doesn't make sense to me so much. So if I can buy myself a bit of goodwill by coming in and, you know, volunteering, Then I totally will. And I was so eager for, to, to go to this festival, which is, it's, it was the nationalist effort. That was the first one I went to. And I've done more different festivals since I love festivals anyway. And the nationalist effort is a huge deal. It's, you know, it's, you can watch it on TV the whole week and it just looked really fun. And when I looked at how to do it, I actually felt reassured by the volunteering because I knew I was going to travel there all by myself. I was going to camp all by myself and I'm really social and I'm not shy. So that helps. (laughs) It really helps. So I just felt like, I mean, I felt shy in the moment, but I'm not so shy that the idea of it would put me off. I, I just felt like this would be such a great way of just getting involved and having somewhere to be and having somewhere to stand and kind of working out what on earth is happening. And I pretty much sat the first time. I think, yeah, you're right. I've been doing it for, mm, been doing Welsh for like a year and a bit, but I'm not a crash course speedy learner. So I, I go slow and steady. I'm in my fifth year of Welsh and um, now it's no problem at all. But at the time I remember sitting through the volunteer briefing, and just being like, didn't understand a word of what I just said. No clue, no clue. Uh, what helps with Welsh is that it is it is perfectly acceptable to speak English. And I had no... I didn't set myself some kind of artificial pressure to suddenly be a magical, fluent being in Welsh at all. And the reward... Oh my God, the rewards that you get for it. it I, it's just so magical. It's so cool. I was in a tent in Abergavenny watching... A lady read out poetry based on the planets with another lady playing the harp, and it was all in Welsh and no idea what they were saying. I think I worked out that the days of the week are named after planets, that was about it. And they were doing, the, there was a ballet at the same time. That's amazing. And then you experience things like the insane amount of readiness that the Welsh have to sing the national anthem at any notice for no reason. They just sing the national anthem all the time. And just all these little bits. And it was just so exciting. And again, it's that musical thing. It's, there's something that makes me, it just makes me so happy to do it. So I don't know. I never really worried about the language barrier, but at the same time, I didn't really walk in there expecting to be any good at it at all. <laughs> you know, I figured it's, it's fairly straightforward. And then the second time I volunteered, I was able to say things like, please sit in the seats to the right and this room is full, please go away now and stuff like that. The first time, no, nothing, nothing. But people are so generous. People are so kind. You have to assume people are nice. This wasn't really an answer, more like a, yeah.
0: (laughs) You actually touched on something that I I kind of want to bring back up. You just said a moment ago that you are a slow learner and I feel like now a lot of people want to learn faster, learn better, learn harder. So um, I'd like to know more about your approach on, you know, Taking learning slow and that kind of commitment. I don't know how to, I don't know how to answer that because I don't want to
1: say, oh, I do this many hours or I do this much. You know, I know it adds up, but I think in many weeks, in a typical week, my language learning time adds up to like two or three hours, and that's about it. Even when it's Chinese and Welsh, um, I just have to. Okay, I have a, I have a deep trust that it's all gonna add up to something. And I think a lot of people who want fast results don't have that. So that maybe that comes from obviously how I speak English that, that this didn't happen overnight and, and how I speak French and how I haven't studied French, but my French always comes back and, or, you know, so there's different languages that I can kind of draw on, but I honestly have, I've got faith that number one, if I enjoy it and I have fun, I'm going to stick with it. And and equally, I know for a fact that if I stop enjoying it, I will stop doing it, which is instant fail. And the other thing is that I, yeah, I just know, I, I keep telling myself yeah, you can't learn. I keep saying this to people as well, that like you can't learn backwards, right? If I don't do something this week and then next week I do something, it's not, like I'm going to have undone what I did two weeks ago. It still all adds up to something. And actually there is a huge benefit once you're in about year two or three, <laughs> if you can get there, it there's this huge long-term memory benefit where suddenly everything comes together and you actually progress way faster than if you just rushed through to to wherever you want it to be so i can i can recommend it (laughs) i can recommend it and to me it is it is very very satisfying but i don't know whether i could teach it you know
2: that's a good answer for sure and um in terms of things that you would recommend i know you do one-on-one language coaching so what kind of stumbling blocks do you tend to see with people who seek your help and um, like how do you suggest getting through those blocks? What do you think comes up the most?
1: It's interesting with coaching language coaching. Obviously it's, it, it's a bit like a kind of jelly where nobody really knows exactly what the shape is going to be. And that is actually a good thing. Like no one really knows what it's going to be before they come in. So I do a lot of, you know, reassuring and just say like, it's okay. You don't have to come to me with a specific problem. Often something that I encounter is people feel, I wish more, more people would come to me when they're early on you know, when, when they, they think they know what they're doing, but they don't really know what they're doing. It'd be nice to work with them and tell them that they don't know what they're doing, (laughs) but that's fine. And the real kind of what, what I find is a lot of people come to come to -to one-to-one coaching when they are feeling stuck, frustrated, or like something has happened that they have interpreted as a failure and they're really struggling to get over it. And then the motivation starts to suffer and they start to feel like they're just bad at it. They feel like they're not able to live to their own standards anymore. So a lot of what we do is kind of looking at the goals you set yourself, how you can be, a lot of it is kind of being more kind to yourself in many cases and how you can bring your language learning out of this space where you look at it as performance and back into something that you internally enjoy and you connect to and you kind of ask yourself, you know, questions like what is actually the thing about Think about this. Why am I here? You know, what is the reason I'm really started? And so often I hear the most amazing things, you know, people saying, oh, I really love cooking Chinese food. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what do you do this currently? No, don't do this for my family. That's a good idea. So you kind of get a lot of people ask, you know, you just ask two or three questions and then people come out with all of these magical ideas and these wonderful ideas that were just kind of seemingly just out of reach. So that's a lot of, a lot of what happens in coaching sessions. And sometimes, especially with my people who are interested in about 25 languages all at the same time, it's almost more of a space for them to just come and put it all out and sort through it all and then leave with a clearer idea of what the plan is. That often happens as well. So there's two types, either you feel really, really stuck or you just feel a bit like it's all a little bit chaotic and you want to sort it all out. Um, and then I'm experimenting with doing more, more specific proposals. So for the first time this week, next week, I'm going to run, um, can't promote it because it's, it's very experimental. Something I'm running is it's I'm calling it 30 days to fluent, which is the idea of kind of sitting down and setting up your study plan, kind of planning your month with the support of, with my support. So that you know, because a problem that I often hear is that people don't really know what to study and what to do, and again, that resource overwhelm plays a big part in that. So it's to help to help people get their vision away from huge, faraway goal and into the small manageable steps is is just so, so, so beneficial. And so far, I think that's really that's very, very popular with people to
0: kind of help on those specific problems. So let's just say, for example, I'm starting up a new language and I'm overwhelmed by resources. What would kind of walk me through the process of maybe helping me figure out what resources might work for me? Mm. The way I think about resources is to, I I usually split
1: them into what I call guiding and input. And then there's sort of, okay, so there's the reference resources, which is like your dictionary or your Forvo, you know, just, they don't really... You, you can't really I mean you can't you can't read the whole dictionary but That's not going to really teach you a language they're just there to support you but then there is there are resources like um like German Uncovered right the German course that I teach and they really they start a chapter one and they take you through a set a progression of chapters and they they teach you in that way in that kind of Mm-hmm. curriculum way, where you have a curriculum, you know what the outcome is. And you know, if I follow these steps and do all the exercises, I'm going to get much closer to that outcome. That's a guiding resource. I always put Duolingo in that as well. Although I think a lot of people use Duolingo differently, but essentially the way it's structured, it still is like, well, there's a, you know, there's a progression here. You, you're supposed to go, you don't go to skill tree level 50 when you're at skill tree level two. So there is that. And I don't, I would say, especially if you're a beginner, not to work with more than two of those, because they all kind of teach you the same thing at the same level. You don't have to restrict yourself to one, but you kind of have to know what you're looking at. And then the other, the way the other class of resource that I've made up in Kirsten's system is input resources and input resources are kind of your YouTube videos, your Books that you read, your you know any songs that you listen to, almost a lot of the resources that you can get essentially from being online. Now, if you want to study a new language, especially if you're brand new, and you're just doing input, you're just kind of like, oh, I'm going to listen to this Disney song. Oh, that taught me this word. Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to teaches me this word. And that's Good, but there's kind of a but there because usually what that kind of makes you feel, especially after two or three months is where is this going? I don't have any direction and I don't quite know what comes next. And then you, you, you'd end up with this kind of sense of confusion. So you want that, you want that kind of line, especially in the first year or two of learning a language. I found it. I can't do it without that myself either. You kind of want that to kind of guide you through. And, you know, people recommend I, like I talk to tutors or other tutors. If you're working with tutors, you have this thing where you can use them in both ways. You can use them to practice and to reinforce what you're already learning and to learn new things, or you can use them to pretty much work through the book with you. And it's, it's your choice, which way to go. I've ended up with Two different chinese tutors one just does hey just get one repeat after me and then the other one is like oh i essentially have a conversation where i type stuff into google translate and read it out to her so both types work you just i found it's so cool when and you feel so much more in charge of what you're doing when you're actually more aware of what type of thing you're looking at what the purpose of that thing is and where it fits into your individual structure and system
2: and when it comes to recommending resources, I know a lot of people tend to sway in the direction of, you know, wh- what's the best app or what's the best website. Uh, but I know you're a fan of a bit of the old school kind of, uh, you know, using vocab notebooks and such. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Like, how do you recommend these more uh, like physical uh book-based methods to learn a language and what are the advantages?
1: Oh, it's it's interesting. I find the especially vocab for me, maybe again, maybe because it's related to memory. I don't process as well when I'm not handwriting. I'm, I'm forever doodling and stuff like that. So it's, I, I want to say like, I recommend them, but all my recommendations, I always have this massive caveat, which is just try it. But if you, if you hate it personally, like I know somebody who does, I don't know, 10,000 Anki's in a week or whatever she does to me, that sounds like a nightmare. I would really not enjoy that, but it's not like whatever works for Kirsten works for everybody. Right. Having said that, um, I really like, yeah, the old school vocab notebooks. And now that I've talked about them so much, I know that you can get them in the USA. Cause I thought this was a German thing at first. This is just how I did vocab in school. So I'm just super, I've had this I've been indoctrinated in this method and it works for me. And it's really the simplest thing. You just write, you just get this paper and you can get pre-printed paper with a line down the middle. In America, you buy Pitman ruled or Greg ruled. That's what I've learned now. And, um, you, you write your words in the target language on one side and in your native language on the other side. Or maybe you could do like now I don't do my native language anymore. When I do Chinese or Welsh, I write, I write them in English because English is kind of my, main language these days so it doesn't have to be a native language and then you what i do is i kind of have this record and every time i go back to the book i go back two or three pages and i see what i remember from the pages before and over time people have told me that this is very much like the gold list method which i've never really looked into in detail but it's just that thing of like writing it down is the first repetition is the first touch point and the more like touch points you have with this target language, the more likely you are to remember it. And you don't want them all like in the in the same day, because that's not how you get them into your long-term memory. So to write them down and look back over those old pages, I find that really, really helpful. And for me, I'm one of those people where a lot of stuff bounces around my head during the day and whatever I've written down, has kind of, is kind of external is kind of somewhere else that isn't in my head. And then my brain's kind of, it, it calms me down, you know? Um, so that's why I personally really love working with vocab notebooks in particular. I, I really, I I have tried also to find book-based resources, like guiding resources, but I have to say all of my Welsh, I have some books, but I didn't really use paper-based resources until I started reading learner novels and stuff like that. Most of my basic courses were there was
0: an audio course and there was a like an online course that I did. You mentioned just now that English has kind of become your main language or your home language. Do you feel at all ever that you're forgetting your native language? (laughs) No. And yes, Um, I think
1: my usage of German is not quite as like, I, I know I'm never going to forget how German works. I'm never going to not understand German, but I think when I speak German, I speak with an English sentence, melody. I speak, my my accent's kind of shot a little bit and I just don't quite sound like everybody else. I sound a bit weird. And so for the first few days, I feel really self-conscious. I feel like I actually know German a lot better now than I ever did when I was living in Germany. And that's because I've been teaching it so much. So I know German inside out in a way that I never used to. And a special strength for sort of a special power that i have developed is that because of my english is so good and because i'm so around english speakers now when english speakers make mistakes in german i know what they're trying to do in english and it gives me this extra teaching skill because i can just say to them oh instead of saying this is how we do it this is what the rule is you can meet people from this is what you're trying to do i know what you're trying to do here's you know like here's how to how to get there and i have found that I found that that has gone down so well with people and it's super, super useful. But like when I, when I teach a German retreat, then I always go to Germany about two days before everybody else gets there. And that's just so that I can spend two days speaking German <laughs> and make sure I, you know, I feel a hundred percent comfortable and I don't accidentally throw in the word actually or something like that.
2: And the, when it comes to the retreats, I've, I've uh, seen you share the retreats that you're on and. Um I'm curious what have you uh found from that because in people's minds there's this idea that you know the that language immersion just go to the country you'll magically learn it and I think uh guided immersion has so many different advantages so what is your German retreat and uh how do you help people uh with their own language projects in that
1: There's two purposes to, to the German retreat, which, or three actually, um, there's the one that makes me happiest, which is I get to take people to places in Germany and we get to look at Germany from a local's point of view, more or less. And I get to, you know, arrange these tours for people, have all these amazing experiences that, that are a little bit off the beaten path. So that's, that's number one. Number two is yes, the immersion benefit and this kind of push to speak and the feeling I'd like you know, feeling like your brain's on fire on day three, but then on day four, things start to come together and just that continuous every day. There's a huge demand for hours and hours for you to speak German or to think German and you kind of can't escape. That is really good. And the other thing was really that I wanted people to come out of learning mode and to feel like student. And I have to sit there and have to learn this. And again, I have to perform German, you know, I have to get the grammar correct and just find a place where we're just having fun we're just enjoying ourselves and you're having these wonderful experiences and it just happens to be in German and that's so cool because you just kind of at the end of the day people come in and they're like you know, they they don't talk about how they did this in Germany, they did that in Germany, did this in Germany. They kind of go, oh, that pizza was really good. Oh, that wine was really good. Oh, it was so interesting. We saw this. You know, like oh my god, we stood where Hitler's bunker was. And you know, I don't. That that's a bad example. It's a car park now. It's a car park. Uh, <laughs> you know, whatever experience it is, we went to see uh we went to see an apple farm, and we went. oh, Yes, what did we do in Munich? Oh, we did a. What's it called? Oh, we we had a volunteer guide show us around the city and he just told us all these different stories and he was so sweet and it was the hottest day ever and he took us to all these churches especially because churches are so cool inside. <laughs> and just all this, you know, you get this like extra experience and I feel like and I've seen this with people. I've been doing I've done about 4 or 5 retreats now. I've seen this with people where you have all these experiences and it, it isn't about people realize that it isn't about, Oh, you're, you're now guaranteed better at German. It's more about like, you've now used it and you've realized that this is actually an option for your life, you know, and an option and an experience that you can take away with you. And that somehow has rekindled the flame and keeps you going for another like two or three years of learning. It's the same as what volunteering at the welch festivals does for me there's just something about getting to live in that language and in that place for a week that keeps you then going for the next two years it's
0: magic so good so one of the questions that we like to ask everyone who's on the podcast is what language hacking is to them so what is language hacking to christian cable
1: oh, you're asking me with like the, I've got an aversion to hacking because hacking to me sounds to the word um, because it can sound like, well, shortcuts where you you skip the effort um, and you magically get a result handed to you. And we all know that that doesn't really work. So what language hacking is for me, when I really look at it, is non, nothing to do with actual hacking or with how we started to use the word hacking. And it's much more about this, Smarter, more modern, more lively approach to learning a language that takes it out of a feeling of getting graded and having to, you know, be a certain way, and just allows you to be yourself in your language learning and to just go and enjoy the aspects of it that you like the best. And a lot of that is to do with something about is is with having these early conversations. I think we used to think of conversations as the prize for getting good at your language and to have people experience the thrill of being really bad at a language and still having a conversation is just is really, really, really satisfying.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100 percent. And otherwise, um, I'd like to share some of the projects that you've got going on. We've touched on uh, vocabulary specifically with your vocab notebooks and how you learn words in Mandarin and such but uh, you have your own uh, system, uh, your solid vocab memory. Could you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yes. Yeah. Your, your solid vocab memory is, it's probably as close as I come to teaching a system <laughs> in a way. Again, because I, I like to teach things in this free sort of coaching-based approach, which is the the idea that, you know, you'll be aware that your mileage may vary. And really it is you as the learner who knows yourself best. So that is always where I come from with everything that I teach. And the way I talk about vocab learning is really to break it down into acquisition or, you know, like finding the vocab, getting the vocab into your, into your world. And that's about choosing which words you learn really, and setting yourself sensible goals. And something that I really don't, I really don't advise is for people to say, Oh, I want to learn 25 words a day, because that's going to add up to, you know, in a week, I'm going to know this many words, but actually learning 25 words today means you have to learn 50 tomorrow if you're going to do that every day. And it's, it don't really, you know, I, I don't really believe in that. So I kind of talk about setting yourself the sensible goals and then talk about where to like look for those words and how to think about capturing them in a way that is systematic, that gives you those contact points. And then I talk about memorization as a different step, which is more about to see did I do it right this time? <laughs> so it's more about getting your, getting the word into s- it, it, sticky in your mind, really. So I share a lot of tricks um, about how to make the word sticky. And then the last step that I talk about is about reviewing. And I have to say the way I come at it, it's not necessarily like you must have paper-based system, but I kind of took a step back and I talk about SRS and how SRS isn't really tied to the algorithm and even just using the words and using the new words and new vocab that you learn, bringing them into conversations, challenging yourself to, to talk about a specific topic, bring, bring, bringing them around your house. So another method that I seem to have since the 90s is to put everything on sticky notes and just, you know, cover my house in sticky notes. Those kind of things are like a natural SRS. You know, like your environment becomes your SRS. And I think what we have been told, what we've been led to believe through really good algorithms is that you need the algorithm and you need the digital interaction in order to get words into your memory. And that is not true. So I talk about creative review methods and different ways that you can, you can get those benefits, but not necessarily without, without necessarily having to do the flashcards while all the while allowing people to totally do the flashcards as well. And so that's essentially it. So it's acquiring, memorizing, reviewing.
2: Yeah. And we will make sure to uh, link to your solid vocab memory in the show notes so people can uh, check that out if they want to um, expand on their own ways to, um, like, if they want to learn how you learn vocab and apply it to their own lives.
1: Awesome. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And you've got a lot of interesting stuff that, uh, like, as we were saying at the start, uh, Kirsten has her own podcast with so many episodes that uh, people should definitely check out and she's got her own website she's got a lot of stuff she does online will be linked to her social media the website all of that check that out in the show notes
1: thank you so much thanks for having me so exciting to be on another podcast oh my god
2: thanks for joining us i really appreciate your time and um, everyone go check out her stuff and until the next episode happy language learning
0: happy language learning happy language learning of each episode, we like to share an actionable takeaway that you can incorporate into your language learning. Usually, our language hacking tips are strategies you can use to get quick results, but in this episode, our takeaway is a little different. This episode, Kirsten shared how slow learning and taking the long-term approach can benefit your language learning. When you stick with your language for the long term, you begin seeing compounding interest in your efforts. The material sticks with you better, and the longer you've learned, the faster you learn because you have a strong foundation in your language. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to leave us a review at languagehacking.com review. We love hearing from you, and we read every review. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel. With special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.